Traveling the Vortex. Side trip. Welcome to Side Trip number 22. I'm Keith. I'm Sean. I'm Glenn. And we are joined by author Jonathan Cooper, who wrote Lethbridge Stewart's The Showstoppers. Welcome, Jonathan. Uh, welcome, Mike. Thank you. Uh, welcome to all the listeners, and uh, thanks for having me here. So, how did you get into writing, Jonathan? Um, it's something I've, I've done, I think, for, for quite a long time. Um, I think I can remember being a kid and always sort of, always writing, always putting, you know, ideas into stories, and yeah, and I think I graduated up from much, much shorter stuff, literally, you know, short stories, probably even stuff less than a page when I was a lot younger, um, until sort of, yeah, and developed that, and it, it sort of got longer and longer until I was, um, yeah, working on working on books. Um, I sort of started doing it a bit more seriously when I, when I started university, I think, uh, maybe out of more pretension than talent. Um, but yeah, just have uh, been working away at it ever since, really. Uh, are you a fan of the Doctor <laughs> Who uh, universe? Oh yeah, 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 and I um I have been for for many many years. Uh, as I say, my brother is is visiting me at the moment. I live over in Amsterdam, and uh, he's not even too much into sci-fi. But you know, we we came, we had a few beers in Amsterdam. We came back, and we put on Pyramids of Mars because. <laughs> the point, the point, the, you know, we always watch when we were kids, uh, and so yeah, quite happily sitting there, a little, a little worse for wear, and just uh, yeah, like, all the memories coming back with that because we used to watch it a lot when we were children, um, and yeah, I've you know sort of grown up with it as well, and yeah, yeah, been a been a fan for many many years. So. Now, had you written anything published or even unpublished in the uh, Doctor Universe universe before? Um, I think I did one short story, which was going to appear on another website uh, for a friend of mine, which was, I think, a Ninth Doctor and Rose story. Um, but I don't think it ever got published in the end. Um, but besides my own, you know, a few random scribblings here and there, um, not really. Like, much as a fan as I am, I never really, um, I never really wrote any, any Who fiction, which seems weird now I think back about it. Well, you took to it pretty easily it seems to me um was it an easy task to kind of write within this realm not just the lethbridge stewart realm but within the realm as a whole especially as well known as a lot of even these characters are within the universe uh, yeah yeah um it's interesting because i actually i quite welcome uh having uh what's the word like limitations placed on what i'm writing uh so to work within with the set characters that Andy had already developed, as well as, you know, you've got Lethbridge Stewart, who's, who's such a strong character. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Andy was asked a similar question and saying, you know, was it difficult to write for, for the Brigadier? It's like, no, because he seems, he already seems so fully formed in your head and so strong a character. It's not actually that difficult to, to get into that space. So certainly writing for Lethbridge Stewart I enjoyed. Um, and again, I think you have to be careful. Um, Certainly, there's there's a feeling at the back of your head quite a lot of the time that you've got to stay faithful to this character because he's so you know uh, he's so loved by all the fans. So that's definitely something you think about. Um, Was the temptation strong to I don't know maybe pepper in some additional Who universe stuff that you, you kind of had to toe that line between what they have the rights to and what they don't. Of course, um, and I don't know. I I 
tend to shy away from from putting too many references in. I think I in, I enjoy them, but I I've certainly read quite a lot of Who fiction, and I think a lot of the EDAs were quite guilty of this, and and certainly some of the uh, Virgin NAs as well. Um, was it was there was this sort of case of geeky one-upmanship with people wanting to put these sort of most obscure facts that they can in. Um, I, yeah, I always find that a lot putting because it kind of takes me out of the reading of it. It's like, oh, I, I see what you're referencing there. And I know that's utterly hypocritical of me with all the kind of underwater menace references in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully they're so sort of big and big and silly I'll be able to get away with it. Um, I mean, but there's little things as well that, that I did want to tie up. So I, I allowed myself the one geeky bit with the uh, dwarf star rabbi yeah. uh, towards yeah. the end. But that always, like, one of the things that really annoyed me with sort of Day of the Moon, it's like, where did I get that from? Oh, like, I want to know what, how the US government got all this, you know, mysterious alien metal. And so hopefully, like, there's a little line in there that explained it. But, uh, it's, but that always bugged me, and hopefully I've rectified that now. <laughs> <laughs> I think as, as fans, there's always a, a certain um, threshold of how much little wink and nods to other Doctor Who um, references that you can get away with before it kind of feels forced and yours doesn't do that it seems to be the right balance <laughs> that's good to know um yeah and you're right it definitely can feel forced and i think i think some of it certainly with with on occasion it can feel a little bit like showing off it's like here's you know here's all here's how much i know here's like the most obscure little bit of trivia that i can sneak in um and yeah i think again it's the kind of thing that can just take you out of a story and um, it, it almost like it, it's showing, like you can see the seams. Does that make sense? When you can, when you have that in a book, you say like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, like I, I see what you're doing there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I, I, I think I'm ho- hopefully more interested in in just getting a story together and and getting a nice pacing and rhythm. And I think some of those little references that are peppered in like that can can take you out of that occasionally. Well, let's uh, talk uh, more specifically about show stop- the showstoppers. Where did the where did you formulate this idea from? Where did it come from? Well, um, this is interesting because, as I was saying earlier on about uh, limitations and and placing them, the whole idea of having a story set in a TV studio uh, was Sean Russell, uh, the candy jar head honcho, head publisher guy. Because uh, he had actually worked with, um, I think it was for ATV, certainly with like ITV. He'd worked in these studios uh, back in the day, so he knew a lot about it. Um, and so he he said to us, or said to me, or said to Randy, like whether I'd like to write a story set in this environment, just because he thought it was something you know that might be interesting. And obviously, you know that then you can use all these um, all the references and all these you know. Um, it was a very rich time, I think, for TV with Lou Grade and, you know, had these fantastically imaginative uh, television shows coming out. So, yeah, I think, think working in that environment, because it's, I think it's quite rich. There's quite a lot you can do there with it. Um, and, you know, obviously you can have a bit of fun with it as well. Um, so, yeah, having, having that placed on me, I think, was very positive because then if you're aware of the limitations, then you can kind of say, okay, well, then how far can I, how far can I push this? What can I do within these boundaries? And I think that can actually help you be a little more imaginative and a little more creative with, with this stuff that you're doing. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, um, but, but pretty much the whole, the, the, the idea of, a, uh, of the TV studio was, was Sean's idea. 
uh, and then I sort of <laughs> ran with it basically and started creating all these all these crazy characters that might inhabit that kind of world and yeah put them all together and kind of see what happens essentially. One of the great things I loved about it was the fact that there's this actor who appears to have all these certain characters and we we're kind of clued in early on that, well, this is kind of a sci-fi book. It's obviously some sort of duplicate, but the joy in the story is you come up with several, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's this as you unravel the story until you finally get the revelation. And then it's so satisfying that whatever you had thought it might've been before, just you're glad it wasn't that because the actual end result is so great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, with, I, I think I definitely did that, like wanted to leave little hints and maybe people would start thinking like, oh, well, is it, is it clones or is it, is it something, is it a kind of time travel thing? You know, is he going sort of back and forth? And yeah, there definitely are small uh, red herrings that I, that I placed in there. I wanted, and I think you guys picked it up, which is one of the things that I really enjoyed about the, the earlier podcast as well, when you're saying quite early, you clicked that, that it was duplicates. It wasn't the same guy dressing up and running around. And yeah, having that, like, planting that seed early on in the reader's mind, I think, was important for me. But then again, you can have some fun with it. I mean, the, the ultimate revelation is it's a, it's a Nazi jellyfish, which is absurd in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, um, so actually giving these, you know, you can, you can have more fun with it, because when you know you're building up to something that's so utterly absurd, you can make the things that come before that slightly absurd as well, I think. Um, so, yeah, it was just sort of plotting it in that way did give me a lot of freedom, I think, to, to have more fun. And I was always looking for those little little opportunities to, to have some fun with it and, you know, yeah, possibly lead, lead, the, lead the reader down the garden path a bit. Right? Oh, you played with it masterfully because I, I, I tend to cue into things – I feel like I queue into things a little earlier than maybe than, than than some. And man, I bit and I bit hard on every single breadcrumb that you threw out there. And I went down all the garden paths going, yeah, maybe it's this. No, no, that's not it. Oh, maybe it's this one. Oh, no, no, that's not it either. So uh, masterfully done there. Thank you. And also, actually, we've got, I think, probably Andy uh, to thank for that as well. Uh, because... Um, I, I think you guys are probably uh, going to read a copy of it at some point. We've got the Havoc Files 2 coming up. Yes, yes. Uh, which is all the, <laughs> the connected short stories. Um, but in that, we'll be uh, re- well, publishing for the first time, actually, two interludes, uh, which, are in the, which are in the book, which was basically the history of, of Schadengeist and the, the siphonophore creature. Um, and I think, I think the, first, the first one came directly after... Um, Hansen, you know, when he shows them the picture of, of Schadengeist from sort of 1929. And I think you actually got the first interlude right after that, um, which basically did, it, it gave the ending away. Like it, it told, you know, sort of built up to where, where it was going with, uh, with the jellyfish. Um, and Andy, um, yeah, Andy cut them all. He said, no, I think it, it sort of, it disrupts the flow of it and, and it gives too much away. And I'm, as, you know, an author, we've all got a bit, of a bit of an ego, so I was a bit put out at the time. I was like, those bits are brilliant. It goes back to the Second World War, and there's V2 facilities, and it explains all about Shadowstone um, <laughs> and all this other stuff. Um, and then rereading it, as you often do with a good editor, you think, oh, oh, bloody hell, he was right. All along, he was right to cut them out. Um, 
And I think as well, with, with, the, with the way you guys are describing it, which is a really nice reaction to hear for the book, that if, they, if those interludes were still in there, yeah, the, a, a lot of the surprises would have been ruined. So, um, yeah. But now you'll be able to read them all again and, and, and see what happened with, with Schadengeist and how he, yeah, how he got picked up by the... Well, I won't ruin it. I won't ruin it. <laughs> well, we're excited for that. <laughs> I've got to ask... Why a Symphonophore? Where does that come from? Where because you we actually kind of alluded on their podcast that we thought this was something you had come up with, and you had shared a link with us on Twitter saying, "No, these things are real," and and gave us a link to a website. Where where do you get that? Where does that come up? Why, why I guess how do you come to a creature like that as your ultimate kind of uh, monster in a book? Um. Well, I. I... I don't know whether you guys are familiar with Eddie Izzard, uh, but one of the one of the sort of little bits that he does about passive research, that, you know, he'll just sit and watch TV, and it's like, oh, there's a program about sharks. Oh, I'll do some I'll do some jokes about sharks then. It's like passive research. It comes to you, and I think it was a similar sort of thing where um, I was just online, sort of clicking around, and and I you know saw a link to this you know psychonophore. So like, oh, that sounds interesting. What's that? Um, and I clicked through and read about them, and, and they are fascinating creatures. You know, um, Portuguese man of war. Yes, uh-huh. that's a siphonophore. That's okay, what okay. That's a um, but yeah, they. Um, I don't know how much you sort of read read into the little link, but uh, they're kind of related to jellyfish, but they're not. They're not one creature. They they sort of build specialized cells. Um, so like a part of it is for for eating, a part of it's for digestion, a part of it's for locomotion. And they're all these um, different uh, clusters of specialized cells that work together and sort of form a whole entity. But they're actually all independent. So they're sort of, that's like, that's incredible. That's like a really interesting creature to write about. Um, and I, I don't think I had, uh, it was a siphonophore originally. And when I was developing uh, the characters and certainly uh, with, with Mondegreen, who is a, is a sort of Peter Sellers type, and you know, reading reading about him as well, and his sort of this very kind of big and odd personality that he had. I mean, he's a very interesting but very sort of curious character to to research. Um, and that he had all these different parts, and it sort of clicked together. It's like, well, the siphonophore has all these different parts and aspects that it, that it creates, uh, and you know, sort of the the model for the for my Mondrian character had that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I think it just, it was one of those nice bits of serendipity where this random bit of trivia about a very strange sea creature that I knew played into what I was doing anyway. And it's like, okay, oh, well, then maybe I can make the bad guy. And, and, and that's where, where that idea came from, really. Well, and it, it's so easy to, I think, so easy to say, okay, we're going to find some extraterrestrial that we're going to come up with. But in this case, it's a terrestrial being, and it's um, and it's it's all earthbound, all earth based, and I think that's probably the most fascinating thing. Was that intentional that you said, okay, let's make it a little more grounded, let's make it you know terrestrial and not have the extraterrestrial element because we've been having that so much with the Lethbridge Stewart series, and of course Doctor Who. Was that a a um, obviously you know it's it, the serendipity of it is the fact that you just came across it, but was it more intentional to kind of make it terrestrial based? Um, yeah, I, I think it was certainly certainly when I was writing it. And again, 
Um, just purely to do something a little different, because we'd had, you know, the Dominators and the Rutans and the, and the Great Intelligence in, in the first uh, series of books. And, you know, much, and I, I do love that stuff as well, you know, don't get me wrong, I, you know, hopefully at some point in the future I might be writing another uh, Lethbridge Stewart, and then, you know, I think then I'll, I'll do a then. I did want to, yeah, a texture I think is important, um, both both within a, within a novel and in a series, like, you know, the Lethbridge Stewart line. So, yeah, I wanted to do something a little different. Um, and keeping it grounded as well, one of the interesting things, obviously, you know, the bad guy is a, is a Nazi and, you know, the sort of earthbound threat. And I thought it was quite a nice idea to, yeah, keep it all earthbound. I mean, the, the siphonophore, I hope is actually quite sort of sympathetic in the end. It's, you know, it's not an evil creature. Um, and with the interludes as well, you'll sort of see why it's got such a grudge against Schadengeist. And it's very, very good reason, I can tell you now. Um, uh, sorry, I forgot where I was over there. Um, yes, uh, oh yeah, that's it, keeping on Earthbound. Um, yeah, um, and as you say, it gives it a bit of texture, it makes it a little bit different, and well, I don't know whether it necessarily makes it more believable, um, but yeah, yeah, it was it was deliberate, definitely. Well, you, you touched on the uh, the uh, 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 sympathy some sympathy for the character or for the uh, for at the end or the the uh, I keep wanting to say factum, but I guess I suppose that's the group uh, name for it, but. Uh, I think you do get that, especially with um, the uh, where he's the the creature sort of helps Lethbridge Stewart by giving him the the flashes of of knowledge of what he needs to do to escape, and I think that that's what nails that down. That you do have some sympathy for the creature, and you do have some sympathy for it, and relief when it's able to finally get its seclusion within the uh, the container. Yeah, exactly, and um, I mean. I, I always wanted, you know, the ultimate villain to be Schadengeist, to be this sort of escaped Nazi war criminal. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that, that, that hopefully people will see that sort of sympathy there because, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it links in a bit with the, with the quote um, from Herman Melville at the start that, you know, uh, can I get over the top of my head, you know, uh, something about uh, there is no folly of the beast of the earth that is not infinitely outdone by the madness of men. And I wanted that contrast between the kind of unthinking and sort of innocent, for want of a better word, natural world against, you know, this man and the way, you know, certainly in terms of, you know, the hideous Nazi regime and trying to impose um, a sort of order upon that, which is what Schadengeist does well with this with this creature. And, yeah, maybe a kind of little thematic thing going on there slightly. I think it worked brilliantly. It was one of my favorite parts of the book also. Uh, I also really liked Samson Ware. Was was he a character that you had brought to it, or was that a character that Andy said, well, we're thinking of adding this character and having him continue? How did that it go? Was, yeah, very very much um, a bit of both, actually. Andy um, thought of, had an idea for, for a character that he wanted to, to introduce as a sort of ongoing person. Uh, and when Sean asked uh, about the TV thing, I think it, you know the, the cogs in Andy's mind started ticking, and he suggested, well, you know, maybe we can have a sort of um, stuntman character that we can then, you know, it was always, but he always wanted the character who was at that point unnamed uh, to be ongoing. Um, so it was, 
um, he asked me to include this new character in the book. <coughs> Uh, and me and Andy, I think, had a few chats about it. Um, like, we wanted a person of colour as well because we thought that would be an interesting addition to the cast. And we didn't want it to be, you know, all white blokes, which, you know, does, which can sometimes happen in, in these sorts of lines. So we wanted to make sure we had a very diverse set of characters as well. Um, so that was something we added. And then, in terms of his actual characteristics, his sort of day to day, personality you know this is sort of a bit flirty and a bit jack the lad um i think that was mostly me um i mean me and andy developed the, the sort of rough idea of the character and then it was up to me to kind of flesh him out in prone i think one of the great things about his character i thought also was that it very he very could have easily been just another romantic interest for anne and while yeah. it is on his side it wasn't for her so it was a nice kind of it didn't hit the trope like you kind of expect it to. Yeah, and I, I wanted to make sure, um, very, very consciously from the start, that Anne was quite strong as well. Um, so it was really nice to, in some ways, I think I wrote Samson in a way that he, he would have that kind of fun, spiky relationship with Anne. Like I gave him those kind of character traits that I knew would annoy Anne, just to make the scenes that they'd be in together a little more interesting. Um, yeah, and... Anne and Samson I do quite like uh, as a pair, and I try to give them as much time together as possible because they do have, as you say, you know, I think Samson does have a little bit of a crush on her, but knows he's got no chance and knows that there's, uh, there's very much a thing going on between her and Bill. Um, so, yeah. Well, and, uh, and he, he recognizes that and respects that as opposed to yeah. trying to circumvent it and sabotage it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, Samson is a good guy, um, and... I think that's why uh, Lethbridge Stewart sort of respects him so much and, and wants him on board. And I'm actually really looking forward to, to seeing how uh, everyone else writes him. I haven't actually got around to reading The Grandfather Infest uh, Infestation yet. Uh, it's on my list. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm interested to see how, how the other authors approach him too. What about Harold Chorley? Is he as much fun to write as he is to read? Oh, he is. He is brilliant fun to write. Like, Chorley is, I think... Him and Samson are probably my two favourite characters that, that I was writing uh, in that book. Hanson was a lot of fun as well, actually, nearly because he's nuts. Um, but yeah, Chorley, because um, I can't remember the name of the actor who played him back in The Web of Fear. Um, but yeah, this brilliant sort of slightly slimy, low-rent Alan Wicker um, that we get. And he's, he is just so much fun because he's got this sort of selfish, venal side to him and you know, I think he's he's quite sort of distrusting. I think in his own way, like he's quite sincere and quite, you know, he, I think he's dedicated to what what he does. He's a dedicated journalist, but he just the his his own personal morality doesn't balance with that. And he's willing to, you know, just circumnavigate everything he can to get a good story. And yeah, that sort of venal uh, selfish journalist, I think he's quite fun. Yes. And he's a coward as well. He's such a coward. And it's always fun to write cowards because they're, they're the person who just wants to go, wants to leave, wants to kind of get out of here as soon as possible and save their own skin. Um, so you can have a lot of fun with that too, especially balancing against someone like Hanson or, or Lethbridge Stewart, who's totally the opposite. And it's more, you know, we've got to get in and solve the problem as opposed to run away and, and save our own hide. You know? Was it a challenge to have to pick up uh, on the aftermath of uh, uh, 
mutually assured domination where we left Chorley with kind of this scrambled idea and missing memories? Was it a challenge to kind of continue that on or did that help kind of mold the direction that Chorley went? Um, a, a bit of a bit of both. I don't think it was difficult because um, Andy Andy had sort of filled me in with with what happened towards the end of, of mutually assured domination. Um, so I knew it was all coming, and it gave it gave me another a chance to sort of play around with the relationships and with the with the uh, conflicts that appear uh, in in the story. And obviously, then you've got the big one between Chorley and Deathbridge Stewart because Chorley doesn't trust him, and Chorley is sure that he's you know. That he's got something, you know, he's hiding secrets and he's stealing people's memories and all this. So it gives you that nice dynamic between them as well. Even though Chorley knows that Lethbridge Stewart is probably his greatest asset of getting these massive scoops, you know, and he knows something dodgy is going on and he knows he's he's very very close to the scoop of a lifetime. And so he's got this, you know, tenacity that he's he's not going to give up. Um, but I think, because it would have been quite easy for us as well, I think, just to forget about the end of mutually assured domination and say, you know, oh, Chorley forgot about it or let's move on. But um, when I was creating Hanson as well and the fact that he was slightly insane and his memories had gone missing as well, a little like the, the serendipity between, you know, Mondegreen and the, the idea of the siphonophore and constituent parts, uh, it was just one of those things that seemed to fit together quite nicely. And if we can actually do that and, you know, take, you know, Give respect to Chorley as a character, basically, and have him, you know, not just wiping the slate clean and he comes back and he's all fine again. Um, it, it does make him more interesting. I think it makes him more interesting to write. It makes him a more interesting character for, for people to read about as well. You know, if he does have this through line, if, you know, his, his story is a, a continuous one and not just you know, reset at the, end of every, at the beginning of every book. You mentioned earlier with um, your kind of uh, a wink and a nod to the underwater menace. Mm-hmm. How it, it it seemed rather fortuitous that the the timing on that happened the way that it did. With at least here in the states, BBC finally released Underwater Menace on DVD not too long before your book came out it, and I don't know what the timeline is like on, on, on that side of the pond that uh, maybe it's been out uh, uh, far earlier, but it, it still is a relatively new old story. Um, um, I, I mean, I, I certainly didn't plan that at all. Um, the, um, yeah, I, I think that was just sort of good luck on my part. And if, you know, the BBC can help us shift a few more copies or we can help the BBC shift a few more copies of the order when it's then, you know, <laughs> So much the better. I certainly, certainly not something I planned. No, um, the with the whole sort of nothing in the world can stop me now. I mean, it's a it's it's a classic quote anyway. Um, but a lot of the book was influenced as well by Doctor Strangelove. I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys know this, but um, we uh, Candy Jar has actually published um, Peter George's uh, the, the, his novel of Doctor Strangelove, and one of the original ideas we had. And again, this is how, you know, I think a little insight into how these things are put together and the and the way things work. But we, there was potentially, uh, we were going to have Doctor Strangelove as the villain before the before the Siphonophore came along, uh, and it was a kind of going to be a very a sort of similar similar thing that played with it a lot. So you wouldn't know whether it was, you know, the real Dr. Strangelove or whether it was actually this insane actor who had just gone out of his mind and they believed he was Dr. Strangelove, which I think 
there's the hangover from that earlier on where you're not sure whether Hansen is just insane or whether there really is a Nazi war criminal <laughs> you know, uh, underneath a TV station. Um, so I, that had a big influence as well. This is a strange something. And obviously, you know, if you've seen the film, Peter Sellers performing towards the end, that strange sort of manic uh, German intensity. It's insane. An absolutely beautiful, hilarious performance. Um, and I think basically I just used used the chance of, you know, this this very, I think you said this kind of cornball, very over-the-top uh, villain uh, in the form of a kind of Chardonnay's clone. And it's like, well, you know, I can, I can, I'll allow myself to have some fun with it. And then so you got the Zaroff line there in, uh, as well. Um, but, yeah, so that was, it was, the, the shot, I think the, the, the Zaroff, the underwater menace stuff, kind of came after. I think that wasn't an idea at the start. It just sort of nudged in by mistake uh, while, while I was writing it. <laughs> was it hard to write uh, Schottengeist's accent? Like, because it comes across very German. So was, was that difficult? Or did you kind of have to sound it out as you spelled it? Or yeah, how, yeah. how did that work? Yeah, I, I did sort of sit there in, um, at my desk shouting out these sort of random Germanic phrases and trying to figure out, like, okay, phonetically, how does that work? Um, and I think I, I had to go through it about three or four times before I was happy with it and just making sure, I think for consistency more than, any, than anything else. So, you know, you're always saying Z instead of the and that kind of thing. And so just making, yeah, I think the consistency was, was the hardest part, just ensuring that it, that it flowed and, uh, yeah, and didn't go... I, there was a time as well when it was even more over the top, and I, I cut it down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> were you uh, tempted to create even more of a catalog of characters for Montegreen, or did you have to kind of rail down to the ones that we got? Because I, quite honestly, I would have loved to have seen about a dozen more of his characters. Yeah, um, there, there were quite a few. There were um, a couple of scenes, I think, with Professor Paperclip that got cut. And I think there are some more pot splits bits as well. Pot splits bits. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Felt the wrath of Andy's red pen. Um, And again, I think I think it was probably a good idea Um, because I don't think when when we had those kind of interactions with with all these other characters that he played, you know, they were quite. I think they were quite fun. They were quite entertaining, but they didn't really drive the story forward at all. It was just a couple of kind of comic scenes where I think Paperclip set fire, sets fire to his arm with a Bunsen burner or something and just sort of flees uh, the sets. Um, and yeah, they, I think they slowed the pace down a bit too much because uh, this was all towards, I think, around, around sort of middle of the book when Lethbridge Stewart is visiting the studios and, and watching the filming. And so he had a lot more stuff there where he was actually watching the filming and kind of just be presented with this parade of, of just bizarre and you know, slightly manic characters. Um, but it just sort of, it slowed it down a bit as well. And it was actually Andy's suggestion um, to have Lethbridge Stewart go off and do his little own investigation uh, at the studios. Like uh, Before, he just stood there and watched all these other characters while Chorley went off and did his thing. Um, but yeah, Andy, I think, very, very sensibly suggested. It's like, well, no, you know, because then the, uh, Lethbridge Stewart doesn't really do much for the first half of the book, and we need him to kind of get out there and be a bit more of a hero. Um, so, yeah, which is why he, he go, goes and has a scrap 
with one of the with one of the guards instead now. So so those those interactions with the characters were there, but uh, they they got swapped around for an action sequence. I don't know if that's a if that's a good exchange or not, but uh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. It was uh, it was a lot of fun to write. So, Sounds uh, like it. Okay. Yeah. And Sounds like it was as much fun to write as it was to read. Well, this is it. One of one of the best one of the best pieces of writing advice I ever got was from an old tutor of mine and she said, you know, if you don't enjoy reading it, if you don't enjoy writing it, they sure as hell won't enjoy reading it. And it's so true, you know, you've got to you've got to have fun and I think when you're creating characters as well, it's it's important to create them so that they're going to be fun to write. Or you know, creating someone like uh like Hanson or, or, or Samson. Um, and it's just sort of entertaining to set up those relationships and kind of watch them spark off each other. Do you know what I mean? Just so there's, yeah, there's tension there and it's, it's interesting. It's, it's basically getting people to argue, I think, is how I do it. It's just set things up to give people enough stuff to get annoyed at each other about it. And then they can have an argument and then you can have some good, fun character stuff with, with arguments. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> If you're looking to write, set up, set up characters going to argue with each other, I think. <laughs> it's a good place to start. Natural conflict. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And the more characters you have to play with, as well, the more conflict you can generate and the more, yeah, the more instances of people <laughs> arguing, again, can come up. Yeah. What was the origin of the... Um testing rooms I, I felt as, as I was going through the book that as you mentioned earlier it's very it's very grounded it's very real world we've got a television studio and despite all the fantastical things that are created there uh, one of the best bits in my mind was when uh, Chorley and Lethbridge were both kind of commenting on oh look styrofoam and you know little twinkling lights are making this on about but then we get underneath the studio and we have this um, labyrinthine maze of testing rooms and very high tech, very almost, and this was one of the things that I kind of felt helped lend to the, well, maybe there is an alien influence going on here because this seems something much grander than what, uh, you know, a studio schmuck is going to come up with for, for his lair. Um, yeah, uh, I think that was another little handover from the days when we were going to have Strange Love as the villain. Because mm. um, obviously towards, towards the end of the, the Kubrick film, um, Dr. Strange Love's grand plan is to, you know, build all these mine shafts and getting people to live in all these sort of underwater, um, sorry, underground, underground mine shafts that are all tunneled out. Uh, and when I had uh, Strange Love as the villain, this... Like his plan had something to do with that. He wanted to make this come to come to fruition. Uh, and when when we decided that Strange Love probably wasn't the best idea, uh, we thought it might have been a little bit too knowing, a little bit too arch. Uh, so we scrapped it. But I did still like the idea of this sort of potential Nazi war criminal and his these sort of hideous testing rooms where he kind of decides where people are worthy or not. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of kept that kept that over basically from from the strange love side of it, and I had to develop it a little bit, obviously, with when adding the the siphonophore and and uh, Chardonnay being a slightly different character from the one I was originally envisioning, envisioning writing. Um, I think if we'd have gone with Strange Love, it probably would have been a bit 
hopefully a little less unsettling, probably would have been a bit funnier. Uh, whereas now I think because, you know, Schadengeist is a oh, despicable human being <laughs> in every respect, like hopefully then we could make it a little a little more sinister. Silly as it is with the with the sort of duplicate Schadengeist ranting and raving and, and doing his thing. Um, but yeah, I, I hopefully it's, it's, it's dangerous enough. But then there's the feeling, I also wanted to evoke uh, some of those great, you know, 60s TV shows, you know, The Prisoner, and I think that sort of slightly surreal aspect of it is is borrowed a little from The Avengers. Um, and yeah, so I think that's that's where it is, it, more little homages you get to the to the older 60s TV shows is in the, in the testing room areas, I think. Well, what else do you have coming up on the horizon? Is there, is there anything else we can look forward to reading from you soon? Um, hopefully, yeah. Um, I mean, Andy, Andy did mention the possibility of, of doing another Lethbridge Stewart at some point. So um, you never know what's going to happen there. I don't know. I think there are a few exciting new authors lined up uh, for the next few months as well. So it would be definitely interesting uh, to have a look at those guys coming up. Um, but yeah, hopefully, who knows, another Lethbridge Stewart at some point. Um, hint, hint, Andy, if he's listening to this. Because <laughs> uh, I need the money. Um, but also, I've been working on a few ideas as well um, for another thing. And interestingly, it's going to be a little bit science fiction. Um, again, I, I feel like I might, might have a better chance of selling it if it's science fiction. Um, which is... And it sort of ties in a bit to the showstoppers. I feel like I've done a lot of research for it uh, when writing the showstoppers, but it's it's going to be a sort of hopefully um, a modern version of Don Quixote, except um, the kind of Don Quixote character is uh, going to stop the horrible gritty reboot of an old of an old sixties TV show, and they're going to do this sort of nasty gritty reboot of it. <laughs> and so his Don Quixote mission is just to stop the reboot happening. Uh, and he's, he's mad. He's mad as a box of frogs, this guy. Um, so hopefully that's going to be quite fun. But it's you, still... If it's, half as, if it's half as good as Showstoppers, it'll be a fantastic story. You yeah, absolutely must keep us in the loop on that one. Yes, definitely. definitely I'm already yeah. salivating. I want to read this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do need to write it first. It might take me a little while, but, uh, but yeah, I've got I've got a synopsis ready, so it's it's getting there. It's definitely getting there. But uh, yeah, who knows? Who knows when that'll be ready? But hopefully soon. Well, Jonathan, we want to uh, thank you very much for uh, taking some time to discuss the showstoppers. And as you know, we we've made no secret about it. It is it is a fantastic read, and we we thoroughly enjoyed it, and look forward to uh, reading. Uh, more from you on the Lethbridge line, Stuart, uh, if that uh, happens. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, and, and thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's been it's been fantastic talking to you, and it's yeah, nice to have a like enthusiastic discussion about about all this stuff. So yeah, it's wonderful to talk to you. Terrific. All right. Well, if that's gonna do it for this uh, side trip, uh, until next time, I'm Glenn. I'm Sean. I'm Keith. Cheers. Good night, everybody. You see you. You have been listening to Traveling the Vortex. Doctor Who and all of its associated programs are owned and trademarked by the BBC. No infringement is intended or implied.